Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash c slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now. Today's guest is Nick Carter, general partner at Castle Island Ventures and co-founder and chairman of Coinmetrics. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here again. One month ago, Bitcoin was at about $11,500, and today it's flirting with $18,000, and it even went as high as $18,400 on Wednesday. Based on that high, there have only been four days in Bitcoin's history when the price was higher, and yet back then, that um, increase was fueled by the initial coin offering craze and this breathless media coverage. And this time around, there's a lot less fanfare. Barely anyone is talking about it. So what would you say makes this increase in the price different from what we saw in late 2017 and early 2018? Yeah, there's a few things that are completely different this time around. Um, endogenously, the markets, the structure of the market is totally different. And the market infrastructure has evolved and changed dramatically. That's obviously our focus as a fund is financial market infrastructure. And I can tell you that it is completely different this time around. It's much more mature. It's more sophisticated. Uh, there's just more financial products available. Uh, and there's more tools that qualified, accredited, and larger investors can use to get exposure. So that's, you know, that's one side, which is just uh, practically and infrastructurally speaking, it's easier to get exposure to the market today. Um, and you know, that looks a lot more mature. And just generally speaking, the financial plumbing is is more functional this time around. And then, of course, extrinsically, you have real macroeconomic tailwinds, which are driving serious alligators towards allocators, sorry, towards the asset. Um, <laughs> and alligators. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, real names in commodity investing and the hedge fund world, uh, global macro names, uh, who are obviously, we've heard them expressing a positive view of the price. That latter element probably gets a little bit more attention. I'd say the former, those endogenous factors, are also very critical. I can't say that our current appreciation or rally is directly attributable to that, but it certainly means that we have the capacity to onboard much more capital in a you know, shorter period of time. And then the other thing that I would mention, as you say, is that Bitcoin was kind of being used as a flow-through asset for retail uh, investors primarily to get exposure to ICOs, uh, to tokens, and to trade sort of long tail assets on some of these offshore exchanges. And Bitcoin was their entrance into the market. 
So a lot of the allocation of Bitcoin was really transient. And that's partly why I think we saw so much reflexivity in the price and its rally was not very enduring back in 2017. Now, of course, the backdrop is different. There's less mania, there's fewer uh, new tokens launching. Uh, I think the regulators are generally discouraging people from launching new ICOs in the manner that they did in 2017. And so Bitcoin isn't really being used in that capacity anymore. So, you know, it's easy to look at the price chart and, you know, see past its prologue, you know, what's different today. I think if you look a little bit deeper, you look at the nature of the market, it really is dramatically different. So you did briefly mention the pandemic, and I'm sure this is kind of hard to quantify, but I just wondered, you know, how big do you think the impact of the pandemic has been on the rise of the Bitcoin price this year? Well, I wouldn't say directly affected it, uh, but indirectly for sure. I mean, first of all, Bitcoin is kind of a dematerialized, uh, natively digital asset, uh, like a lot of those tech companies that are very sort of capital light that did very well. Uh, during the sort of pandemic era, uh, I would say Bitcoin also benefited from that uh, in terms of, you know, this physical infrastructure, but it's completely distributed. It doesn't really rely. It's not interfered with by the pandemic directly. Uh, and, and then, you know, on a more direct basis, I would say the reaction of central banks to the crisis is probably the big phenomenon that's fueling Bitcoin here. Uh, we're seeing, I know people like to say unprecedented, but really unprecedented monetary action some would say the sort of degeneration of the, the current sort of um, monetary orthodoxy. Uh, M1, that measure of the money supply in the U.S., is growing at 40% annualized right now. So we're seeing the monetary aggregates skyrocket. And more so than that, because, you know, quantitative easing and money issuance, it doesn't necessarily have an impact on CPI or prices in the real economy. But we are seeing calls for more direct stimulus directly into the economy, which would presumably be more inflationary in nature, which would make it into the real economy, which is, was not the case with you know previous bounce of QE. So if that is the case, if we have another six or 12 months of sort of lockdown, uh, I think we could really start to see a political demand uh, for direct issuance um, you know, is, issued in a kind of a fiscal capacity. And many believe that that could be you know, natively more inflationary uh, and of course, as a hard asset and an asset with m- no monetary discretion, Bitcoin is something that people look to uh, as an alternative in that circumstance. So it really remains to be determined whether we get inflation or not. But certainly the specter of inflation is looming. And I think that's part of the reason uh, people are taking Bitcoin seriously this time around. Yeah, I think that was one of the exact um, factors that Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy identified when he said that the company had chosen to allocate its capital into Bitcoin. Um, you know, he talked about how the dollar was just losing value um, sitting there. So you wrote up a post this week detailing how Bitcoin is at um, all-time highs in certain metrics, like nine different metrics. Um, so why don't we look at some of them? One of the first ones that you looked at was addresses with a balance of 10 million or more. Um, and currently, I guess it's at about 18 million versus about 14 million at the peak of the bubble in 2017, 2018. So what do you, what does that say to you? Like, why is this a significant metric? Yeah, this is an on-chain metric. So we're looking at the distribution of addresses on Bitcoin's ledger directly. And of course, it's not a perfect proxy for human beings. Uh, I can have multiple addresses 
on-chain, or you could have multiple people that are clustered around a single address because exchanges aggregate um, individuals and they hold their, their balances in omnibus accounts. Uh, but this metric, I just defined it uh, to look at the number of addresses on Bitcoin with at least $10 worth of Bitcoin. And that was really it. Uh, and it's a, it's a measure of dispersion. It shows you effectively the trend in terms of the distribution. Uh, it doesn't tell you precisely how many individuals have $10 worth of Bitcoin because you have to look at exchanges for that. People treat exchanges like banks. But I would say what this tells me is today, as compared with 2017, fundamentally, there are more people worldwide that own Bitcoin. And there's other uh, less high-frequency metrics that you can look to to ascertain this. You know, you look at the Cambridge uh, Alternative Finance Study. They did a survey methodology. They asked exchanges how many KYC users they have. Metrics like that also show growth today. So just fundamentally, there's more people that own Bitcoin today. The addressable market is bigger. And there's another on-chain metric you looked at that's pretty interesting. It's called realized capitalization. Can you define that and tell us what you see when you look at that metric, how it's changed over time? Yeah, this is a metric I introduced in 2018 and surprisingly actually really caught on in the industry. Um, so basically, it takes advantage of Bitcoin's transparency uh, on the ledger and it prices every unit of Bitcoin at the time when it last transacted. So if it last transacted in 2009, it's going to get a zero price, right? So it's kind of a liquidity adjusted market cap. And I almost prefer it to market cap because it really takes into account the current tr- conditions of the chain. And the intuition is, if we're trading and transacting Bitcoin, eventually one of us is going to settle that transaction on-chain. And now that doesn't necessarily hold for every transaction. It's a rough heuristic. So if you run these numbers, you get something that sort of resembles the aggregate cost basis for all Bitcoin holders. And this is well, well above the um, highs uh, or the threshold that it met in 2017 in the prior bull run. So what this tells me is that Bitcoiners have a higher aggregate cost base than they've ever had before. Effectively, Bitcoin is more liquid at these levels than it ever was before. Uh, and so this this shows you know a significant all-time high relative to late 2017. But but it also maybe indicates that there's less desire to sell at this moment than there was in the previous bubble? Quite possibly, because you might say if someone has a very low cost basis, they're inclined to sell out at any moment. Um, Whereas if you have a cost basis that's maybe closer to today's unit price, you might want to be a little bit more patient, wait for some more appreciation. In a moment, we'll also discuss derivatives in Bitcoin. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Nick Carter. So another metric you looked at was open interest on CME Bitcoin futures, which has averaged $330 million this week, but actually surpassed um, but but this week surpassed $1 billion. What does open interest mean, and why did you think this number was significant? Yeah, open interest just refers to the nominal value of all the outstanding unsettled futures contracts. And effectively, we're at all-time high or close to all-time highs for that product. And it's significant for a number of reasons. 
the CME is, I believe, the largest derivatives exchange in the world, and it trades in all number of asset classes. Uh, they added Bitcoin at the precise peak of the last bubble, the precise day. I believe it was December 16th or 17th, 2017, that they added support for that product. And some attribute the <laughs> birth of that CME Bitcoin's futures product to the subsequent decline in Bitcoin's price. I don't have a view on that, but the CME is distinct because it is innately connected into the sort of legacy or traditional financial plumbing. And it's very easy to get exposure to it uh, if you're sort of a, a more sort of regulated entity um, and you really care about your counterparty risk and you maybe don't necessarily trust crypto exchanges necessarily. Uh, so it's an exchange that, for instance, Rentec, when they did their disclosure about potentially allocating to Bitcoin, they said they were going to look at the cash-settled CME Bitcoin futures product. So the more liquid it gets, the better the prospects are for some of those allocators that are maybe a little bit nervous about transacting with spot Bitcoin, but they're, they're, it's much easier for them to um, use CME as a counterparty effectively. Uh, and so the more liquid it gets, uh, the better that is, I would say, for Bitcoin, uh, the more capacity it has to take on those allocators. And a lot of people say that these cash-settled futures don't have any relationship to Bitcoin's price. I would contest that thoroughly. The market makers that are taking the other sides of those trades on CME futures are also interacting with spot. Uh, so there definitely is a connection to spot Bitcoin price. So just want to get ahead of that critique. Um, so ge <laughs> generally speaking, uh, the other thing is... Um, the you know CME is considered to be a highly reputable exchange. The more prevalence it has, probably the more assuaged the SEC is in terms of their critiques around the barriers to a Bitcoin ETF. And as some of these other offshore futures exchanges or derivatives exchanges face trouble, obviously we saw what happened to BitMEX, the CME is getting more and more influential in terms of Bitcoin price formation. This is an onshore exchange, has surveillance sharing, has all of that infrastructure that makes the SEC very comfortable. And so the more influential it gets, I think the better the prospects look for an ETF, which you know clearly would be an enormous catalyst for Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I know people are talking about how now that SEC Chairman Jay Clayton is stepping down, that that could also um, be a green light for an eventual Bitcoin ETF. Um, so just back to some of the different metrics that you looked at, a related one was the Bitcoin options open interest. And that is currently at about 3.5 billion compared to just about 100 million at the end of 2018. Um, can you define what that is and explain why that growth is so sig significant? It's a similar measure uh, to the futures. It's the nominal value of all the outstanding options contracts that are open at a single point in time. And options in Bitcoin are still very small, uh, ultimately. But the fact that they exist at all is quite useful. It gives traders more creative ways to express a view on Bitcoin. Um, and so it means that Bitcoin can just accommodate more capital and more sort of complex opinions about the asset. You know, before we had secondary lending in Bitcoin, before we had these peer-to-peer -peer credit marketplaces, um, you couldn't even short Bitcoin. The only opinion you could have of the asset was long. And then later on, that emerged, but you couldn't bet on volatility. Now that you have options, you don't have to take a directional bet on the unit price. You can bet on whether you think we're going to have a high volatility epic or not. So that is just something that you know broadens the addressable universe of entities that might be interested in taking a perspective on Bitcoin. Uh, so 
you know, the other thing would be uh, commodity producers of the asset, the miners themselves, they absolutely take advantage of options. They're consumers of that financial product. This is one of the reasons why these things exist. It's not just for speculation. They actually derive a real benefit from it. They can hedge out some of their risk. If you think about what an ASIC is, an ASIC is a bundle of call options uh, that depreciates over some given period. Maybe it's 24 months. So they might want to hedge out some of their exposure to the sort of future cash flows that they would get from that. They can do that with options. So I would say just generally options um, are, are potentially a force for stability, actually, in the underlying asset. You also looked at Bitcoin priced in Turkish lira, which might seem a little bit random to most people. Um, back in 2017, 2018, Bitcoin hit a high of 80,000 lira. And now the price um, of Bitcoin and lira is at 129,000. So why, do you, why did you decide to call out this metric? Yeah, and you know, I, I didn't really want to, you know, specifically point to Turkey as a case study for Bitcoin or anything. Um, but Turkey is in the midst of a currency crisis, uh, and there actually is a very vibrant uh, Bitcoin ecosystem in Turkey. If you look at these on the ground metrics tracking adoption, Chainalysis has had some really good studies on this. Turkey is, you know, typically in the top fifteen countries globally in terms of aggregate crypto attention. Uh, whether you're looking at flows on chain, looking at exchange volumes, web visits to exchanges, uh, so Turkey does have uh, structurally fairly high, um, you know, enthusiasm for Bitcoin. But really, the point I was making here is that we all look at the Bitcoin price in dollar terms, but the dollar is not the savings device that actually most people globally are using. Most people have to save in their local currencies. They don't have exposure to dollars through their local banking systems. And so I wanted to point out that there's a number of currencies where Bitcoin is already trading at all-time highs because those currencies are depreciating. That's not just the Turkish lira. You have a currency crisis in Lebanon. Bitcoin's at an all-time high in the Brazilian real, the Argentine peso, obviously the Venezuelan bolivar. Uh, a number of these other currencies are also depreciating, which is another way of showing Bitcoin's resilience and strength as an asset. Even if it's not yet at an all-time high in dollar terms, it is in a number of currencies that hundreds and hundreds of millions of people worldwide are forced to use. So this demonstrates its value proposition in a slightly different way. So we're not going to get to look at every metric you covered in your post, but one of the ones that was pretty interesting was how different the world looked in terms of stable coins back in 2017, 2018 versus now. Here we have about $23 billion worth of stable coins, whereas the last time Bitcoin reached these prices, we only had about $1.5 billion worth. So what does that say to you? Yeah, and this is one of the trickiest metrics, right? Because Certain outsiders will point to the growth in stable coins and say, well, those stable coins are just being issued unbacked and somehow that's causing the price of Bitcoin to increase. I think that's been pretty firmly rebutted by some academics that have actually looked at the question and then also rebutted by the fact that, you know, in 2018, 19, Bitcoin was effectively flat for a long period, um, whereas, you know, the supply of stable coins increased by about 10 billion uh, or so. So, um, you know, if stable coins had this buoyant effect on Bitcoin structurally, we would have seen it in that period. Uh, but I think generally stable coins are useful for Bitcoin because they enable crypto native firms to de-risk their exposure without exiting to fiat. So it kind of traps capital in the ecosystem. 
we never really see people redeem stable coins. They create stable coins, so they convert commercial bank dollars into tokenized crypto dollars. And then they use that as they will, uh, either for working capital in stablecoin format, or they use it um, you know, to access crypto assets like Bitcoin. But they don't exit the system. So the cap it's like Hotel California. The capital stays within <laughs> crypto land. And some of that stable coin issuance is definitely dry powder for accessing uh, crypto. It, I think it just generally enhances the liquidity profile of the entire industry. It makes it more integrated. Uh, and so the other thing would be as more people get used to, and maybe this is their first experience with a natively digital asset, it's a stable coin that can then be the on-ramp for um, you know, state independent monetary assets like Bitcoin. Uh, so I think it's uh, it can be sort of a gateway drug, so to speak. So I'm firmly in the camp of stable coins being generally mutualistic with Bitcoin, albeit not in this direct price accretive way. And one last quick question. I did see some um, theories, I guess one particularly purported by Coindesk in an article saying that Chinese miners have been having a hard time selling the Bitcoin they've been mining. And that's part of the reason that we've seen this rise in price. I did see some other people disputing this on crypto Twitter. Um, and I wondered what you thought of that theory. If you're you know, seeing anything in the metrics you guys track at Coinmetrics. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I did see that uh, splattered all over crypto Twitter as a potential explanation for the rally. Uh, of course, we can never know precisely what. I would be skeptical of these very neat explanations for a rally. I remember there were lots of convenient explanations for the rally in 2017, which didn't necessarily hold water in the end. And even in 2014, with Gox, people ascribe that to Willybot. Um, you know, there's always going to there's always a market for very simple, convenient explanations uh, for rallies. Um, I don't know if that necessarily tracks to the truth that correctly. I asked the team at Coinmetrics to look into this. Uh, they showed me a chart. I can't, uh, you know, depict it for you right now. <laughs> Maybe we can flash it up on the screen. Um, you know, tracking what mining, what miners are doing, what mining pools are doing. Um, what we're really seeing is actually uh, mining pools are selling progressively, and there was no interruption uh, from the OK Exchange. Um, you know, uh, stopping service or, or barring withdrawals. withdrawals yeah. So we didn't really see a correlation in any of those metrics between OKX and minor activity. It seemed it seems pretty much normal. Uh, the other way I would caution people ascribing a lot of faith to this theory would be, you know, um, the Coinbase reward is is fairly low. I think it's about one percent, uh, you know, annualized uh, inflation or issuance. Um, you know, I would look at, you know, the rest of the supply you know, new mined coins are not the only coins that are available to be sold on the market. You have all of the other existing coins that are on exchanges held in you know, hardware wallets and so on. Uh, you know, probably about 40 to 60% of Bitcoin supply is liquid in a given year, right? So people tend to over-index on what the miners are doing. Uh, and sometimes forget that there's a whole other world of Bitcoins that are liquid and available to market. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And especially now with pressure from perhaps new buyers at PayPal, that could also be it or some of these institutional people that are getting interested finally. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thanks for having me, Laura. 
Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, Binance is suing Forbes for defamation. Binance Holdings Limited has filed suit against Forbes, Disclosure, my former employer, and two reporters for defamation. The lawsuit comes after Forbes published an article last month detailing alleged regulatory evasion by the crypto exchange. Binance is claiming harm at the hands of Forbes reporters Michael Del Castillo and Jason Britt over a story it says, quote, contains numerous false, misleading, and defamatory statements. Binance is demanding the story be taken down and is also asking for punitive damages. Stephen Pally, partner at Anderson Kill, tweeted a screenshot of the lawsuit in which Binance claimed, quote, Importantly, Binance does not violate and fully complies with all applicable laws, rules, and regulations in its operations. And Pally commented, quote, Given the fact that truth is an absolute defense to a defamation claim, the discovery on this particular claim is going to be interesting. Tensions have been rising for some time between Binance and the news media. Ironically, this lawsuit comes the same week that a group of crypto journalists, Disclosure, including me, formed the Association of Cryptocurrency Journalists and Researchers, which aims to, quote, provide education, mentorship, and training to ensure practitioners aspire to the highest ethical and journalistic standards. Next up, bullish Bitcoin signals roundup. First, Grayscale's net assets under management has surpassed $10 billion. Next, bulk orders for the latest and most powerful ASIC miners are sold out until spring, and there's greater demand from institutions outside China. Next, skyrocketing Bitcoin prices have led to new highs in Bitcoin derivatives markets, with CME open interest in its Bitcoin futures crossing $1 billion an all-time high. Next, Mexican billionaire Ricardo Salina Pliego, the founder of Grupo Salinas, revealed in a tweet on Wednesday that 10% of his assets are in Bitcoin. He said, quote, Bitcoin protects the citizen from government expropriation. Next up is a regulatory roundup. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton is stepping down from his post at the end of the year, months ahead of his planned June 2021 departure. This news was mostly welcomed by those in the crypto space, with Larry Cermak of The Block tweeting that this boded well for a long-awaited Bitcoin ETF. Surprisingly, on CNBC, Clayton also said that the inefficiencies of existing payment systems have driven the rise of Bitcoin. Next headline, acting controller of the currency Brian Brooks has been nominated to a full five-year term leading the National Bank Regulator. While the nomination itself is positive for crypto, Coindesk's Nicholas Day tweeted, quote, Brooks's path forward is murky, citing an upcoming shakeup in the Senate Banking Committee. Sean Jones, who has been a major player in crypto anti-money laundering regulations, spoke at the second annual V20 Virtual Asset Service Providers Summit, saying that the Financial Action Task Force needs to take a wholly new approach to how it polices crypto. She said that the FATF is trying to graft existing anti-money laundering regulations onto crypto intermediaries, when the core of crypto is to transact without intermediaries. She suggested the regulators look more closely at DeFi. If you missed Sean on Unchained in August, discussing why the travel rule is one of the most significant crypto regulations, check out the episode. Next headline, the latest AMA on Ethereum 2.0. The Ethereum Foundation's Ethereum 2.0 research team hosted its fifth Reddit AMA on Wednesday, answering a bevy of technical questions and, of course, 
questions about the imminent launch of the new protocol. Hot topics included options for backup plans to launch in 2020 if the 16,384 validators needed for launch are not reached by November 24th. Vitalik said, quote, From a technical perspective, which is the only thing the devs can control, ETH2 did launch in 2020. What happens from here is entirely up to the community. After the AMA, Vitalik tweeted one of his replies to the question, what is the max supply of ETH? He responded, quote, realistically, for the next roughly three years, Ethereum will be an ecosystem under rapid transformation. He then named a number of the technical shifts, such as the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, and said people should not be in Ethereum today because they believe in protecting and stabilizing the current rules, but because they believe in the roadmap and that after the upgrade, quote, we actually will get to a place where the network is efficient and stable and powerful and capable of being the base of significant parts of the global economy. Then he said over the next two years, the issuance will be 4.7 million. And then after that, up to 2 million a year minus fees, which uh, will be burnt, noting that that could be greater than the issuance. Time for the DeFi hack roundup. On Tuesday, Origin Protocol lost $7 million in funds in a re-entrancy attack that used a flash loan that initiated a rebase, which artificially inflated the supply of OUSD, which were then swapped for Tether. An attacker also drained $6 million from the value DeFi protocol. Again, this attack used a series of complex tricks, including a flash loan. Next headline, Arca says Gnosis should pay back investors. Cryptocurrency investment company Arca, one of the first investors in decentralized prediction market Gnosis, which held an ICO in 2017, has called for Gnosis investors' money to be returned and for the project to be overhauled. Arca CIO Jeff Dorman tweeted, quote, Reminder, at today's ETH prices, the Gnosis balance sheet is worth $77 million, which equals $169 per outstanding GNO token. GNO, however, trades at $61, a 64% discount to book value. The market is directly telling Gnosis, Joseph Lubin, and the board of directors that GNO has no value. Arca points to changes in Gnosis's product roadmap and, is, and mismanagement of its treasury, arguing that as a result, the project's products have failed to gain traction. Additionally, the letter claimed that the Gnosis team has deviated from the white paper and irresponsibly managed project finances. Arca outlined a number of recommendations for Gnosis, including buying back tokens from holders, which, quote, would allow Gnosis to run as a lean startup, rework the token's use cases, and redistribute the remaining tokens in order to create a network effect on existing products. Gnosis co-founder Martin Koppelman said in a statement to the block, quote, We had already been working on an alternative path for the GNO token, which we think is much more appealing. Our own proposal includes a Gnosis DAO and gives much more ownership to GNO holders. It will be presented to the community very soon. Crypto Twitter had fun with the This Claim is Disputed flag on Twitter this week, applying it to all sorts of tweets, such as this one by CZ, which said, Bitcoin is dead. This claim is disputed. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Nick and Bitcoin, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Don't forget, we are now on YouTube. Subscribe to the Unconfirmed Unchained podcast channel on YouTube today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.